Welcome to the Water Resources Podcast. I am Bridget Scanlon. In this podcast, we discuss water challenges with leading experts, including topics on extreme climate events, overexploitation, and potential solutions towards more sustainable management. I would like to welcome Seifu Kibedi, who has been a professor of hydrology at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa since 2019. Seifu grew up in Ethiopia and received his bachelor's and master's in Addis Ababa and his PhD in France at the University of Vignon. He worked for many years at the Addis Ababa University, focusing on water issues in the Horn of Africa. Thank you so much, Seifu, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Bridget, for inviting Right. So Seifu published a book titled Groundwater in Ethiopia by Springer and a pretty comprehensive assessment of water resources in in that region, almost 300 pages, a very detailed hydrogeology, water resources, water chemistry data. And Seifu has been involved in projects with many different organizations over the years. The UK, DFID, International Atomic Energy Agency, World Bank, and many other groups. So, Seifu, you recently attended the International Association of Hydrogeologists meeting in Cape Town in September, and you're currently serving as the vice president of the regional chapter uh, for Sub-Saharan Africa. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that meeting, and you gave a keynote address at the meeting, so maybe you can tell us some of the things that you learned from that meeting. Yes, thank you, Bridget. Yes, the meeting was uh, held recently in Cape Town, and uh, there were about 500 participants. So it is the 50s Congress, various groups of professionals, uh, hydrogeologists, and financing agencies and users, governments and UN agencies have been represented there. And it was a great meeting. And uh, the meeting started, uh, the Congress started with an, an excursion into various groundwater systems in, in Cape Town and uh, to see practically, you know, on ground evidence on the role of groundwater in, you know, in serving humanity, maintaining urban uh, water needs. And uh, yes, the Congress, uh, was largely it, it focused on hydrogeology at various scales, from poor scale measurement of recharge, new uh, approaches of me- measuring recharge to global scale connection between the groundwater systems and adjacent systems like marine systems. And so the scale issue has been addressed. Groundwater has been dealt with at various scales. And then there are also, because of this new green transition and revival of the mining industry, I would say we have seen a few papers on mining and groundwater, both in in terms of challenges of dewatering and mining operations to impacts of mining on the environmental systems. Yeah, it was such a a successful uh, Congress recently. I gave a keynote address. And my keynote address was trying to connect hydrogeology knowledge with use and with investment and with people and environment, particularly with the context of Sub-Saharan Africa. So there is an aspiration in Sub-Saharan Africa and Africa in general to enhance its groundwater use from its current very low level and uh, overcome local challenges of uh, socioeconomic challenges that the region is is facing. And then I was trying to highlight 
what is the evidence we have in terms of hydrogeology in Africa? Can we really achieve this ambitious source reflected in the World Bank report and other publications talking quite a lot of positivity around, around groundwater? Well, it's, it sounds like a great congress. I wish I could have attended. And I guess it's very fitting that it was in Cape Town when they experienced almost a day zero many years ago. So at that time, I think they were almost totally dependent on surface water and since then have been trying to expand groundwater use. And I think uh, one of the field trips was to Atlantis, uh, which is north of Cape Town, where they have a managed aqua recharge program where they take uh, wastewater and other water and store it in the aqua there for that region. It's nice that they are expanding development of groundwater to provide a buffer to surface water, especially during droughts. So that was a nice aspect. And then it's great that you were able to bring all of the different groups together at the Congress, not just the pure hydrogeologists, but also the people involved in financing like the World Bank and then other organizations involved in governance and and trying to advance the, the role of groundwater in development in Africa. And I really appreciated you shared your PowerPoint with me and your keynote address emphasizing Jude Cobbing's work, Waking the Sleeping Giant, trying to advance groundwater use uh, for development in Africa. So as you say, it's a very ambitious and difficult to, to do because we've been trying to do this now for decades, slowly, hopefully making some progress. Much of your research, Seifu, has been involved in the Horn of Africa, which includes parts of Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia. And that region was subjected to about a three-year drought linked to La Nina conditions and teleconnections with the Indian Ocean dipole. But now they're talking about upcoming El Nino conditions and they're concerned about uh, flooding. Maybe you can uh, describe this uh, problem with trying to manage these extremes going from drought to flood and, and then trying to provide secure water resources and food in that region, considering the context of those extremes. Yes, uh, Bridget, this is a very interesting question. Yes, the region is impacted or challenged by these extreme weather events, La Nina, and, and then, yeah, as a result of these you know, extremes, uh, we see people being displaced in some instances, and then cotton being dying and people losing their properties, particularly their cotton. And the livelihood is mostly pastoralism in, in, in that region. And yeah, the region has been facing these challenges for a long time. And then with recent climate change, as in, the problem is even more aggra- aggravated. And then that is when we think there is a possible, possible to overcome these challenges if the right decision and information is available. And uh, one of the areas we are exploring uh, is the, the groundwater uh, system in, in, in the region. Can, can we use groundwater to sustain lives and also livelihoods? Cotton need water. And during uh, emergencies, like during droughts, the immediate target is to save life and cotton yeah? so that people do not lose their property and uh, their livelihoods. So groundwater can serve that purpose of 
responding to emergencies of this sort. And during floods, if the flood is rightly managed, and uh, there is also a natural system through which the flood uh, water is connected to the the aquifers, and flooding by itself is not not bad. Uh, The flooding becomes bad when we don't know how to manage it and when people live on floodplains, on flooded areas. Uh, nevertheless, flooding could also be an opportunity when you look at it from good groundwater perspectives. That is when most of these aquifers are recharged. And then that is why uh, looking under our feet, kind of, there is a silver lining there. So I'll, I'll put it that way. Right. I mean, it's a pretty complex area with complex geology and topography and uh, climate conditions. And so uh, it's not for the faint of heart to try to explore for water resources and manage water resources in that region. So you have described in your book and many uh, papers and everything, different systems. But in one of your recent book chapters in Global Groundwater Assessment, you you show that there are some areas with low-hanging fruit where it's possible to develop the groundwater more. You mentioned a number of different aquifers, Murti, Bulal, Awash, and many of these regions. And so I think it's great that there would be first lines that you could look at for water resources and emphasize those regions. Maybe you can describe those aquifers a little bit and some of the challenges with some of the others. I mean, the Rift Valley and some of the water quality issues and some of those others. So describing the hydrogeology, I know it's a very complex system, but maybe why some of these aquifers would be good targets for development. Yes, thank you, Bridget. And considering also your, your listeners could be from other continents and not only from the Horn of Africa region, I'll try to make it lighter. Yes, it's a complex environment, it's mountainous, and the geology is relatively complex compared to other regions. It is challenging in some places to look for good aquifers that have larger storage, the transmissivity, and connected to sufficient recharge to sustain withdrawals. And then uh, there are some strategic aquifers, I would say, in otherwise difficult environment. So I'm, I'm talking when I say difficult environment, not the entire Horn of Africa is a difficult hydrogeology environment. These are particular corners of the, the Horn of Africa region, including Somalia and part of Kenya and part of Ethiopia, not everywhere. Uh, so the rest of the, the region has some good potential in terms of uh, shallow ground, but as for uh, productive uses. So the part I'm talking about is this challenged region uh, towards the tip of the Horn of Africa. And nevertheless, uh, we have uh, these strategic aquifers that can be developed and uh, also protected from both overexploitation and degradation in, in quality because of the way we manage the land use around uh, these aquifers. One of the traits, for instance, on these aquifers is invasive species, invasive trees, pumping large volume of water into, evap- into the atmosphere via the evapotranspiration pathway. Protection of these strategic aquifers would be the lowest hanging fruit, in my opinion. And also there are hard-won, very good uh, boreholes uh, supplying a sufficient volume of water to communities. 
and then safeguarding this through innovations like monitoring, remote monitoring. There is a USAID financed innovation by the University of Colorado, I believe, whereby certain devices are fitted onto boreholes and then the health of the boreholes can be monitored from several hundreds of kilometers away. And then if something happens to the borehole, maintenance team could be deployed to the site and maintain the borehole. And then safeguarding these boreholes, strategic boreholes, so in terms of emergencies, floods and uh, droughts, then life uh, continues and then livelihood continues, uh, Bridget. Right. You mentioned that many people in these regions are pastoralists and so cattle are very important to their livelihood. And so maintaining water resources for their cattle and their livestock and stuff is, is uh, critical and with a lot of emphasis on emergency management, I mean, we go from droughts to floods and everything is an emergency. It's important, I think, to have a longer term sustainable development goals to manage these systems. So some of these aquifers are complex and you need deep boreholes to get at the water resource, but then there are other shallow systems that are more readily accessed. You mentioned some of the solutions then, you know, monitoring the water resources so people can understand if the boreholes are functioning. And then if they're not, then they can fix them. And uh, some organizations like in one of your papers, you mentioned uh, this group called Fundifix who can be deployed then and go out and try to fix the boreholes and make them operational. I think that's one of the big issues in Africa is that a lot of the boreholes are not operational. And so trying to develop approaches where they can more readily fix them and maintain them. And you have published many papers on that issue with some of the people from the British Geological Survey. So I think that's a real challenge, isn't it, to maintain boreholes and maintain them operationally? Yes, I think that's a, a problem all across sub-Saharan Africa, I would say. Functional boreholes, yes, how to put it. Uh, but there are innovations, yeah, new innovations about how to deal with this functionality challenges. Uh, but the functionality problem arises from many different reasons. It could be because of borehole engineering, it could be because of the aquifer conditions, or maybe related to management, the way the, the water points are managed by community, by professional providers, etc. So recent innovation is growing, both around proper how to properly site boreholes, and how to use uh, good materials for uh, the borehole design, and also on the management side, managing the water points. And uh, this University of Oxford innovation on Fundifix uh, is uh, based on private public partnership approach, whereby team of engineers or technicians come and join hands and together and form a local company and financed by the public, the government, and also the, the users and philanthropists, etc. And then this group of technicians maintain several boreholes and use the economy of scale to run this system into the future. And then this innovation is tested and it's, it's working. Yeah, can be upscaled in other parts of Africa and with also considering local contexts. Yes, Bridget, right. back to you. Right. We talked earlier about we go from drought to flood and that flooding is not necessarily bad because 
It supports recharging the aquifers. And your study in the Awash Basin really describes some of that. I mean, in many semi-arid regions, surface water recharges the groundwater. And so during flood conditions, then you can get more recharge to the aquifer, and then that can support enhanced development during drought periods. And then there are also solutions like sand dams and other things where you can uh, retain the water in the these ephemeral streams for longer so that it has a bigger chance to recharge the aquifer. So there are different ways then to try to optimize water management to to even out the water supply variability during floods and droughts. You mentioned in one of your papers terracing and to try to reduce erosion and those issues associated with flooding. So do you see a lot of areas where they deploy sand berms to increase recharge and and then a lot of siting of boreholes near these ephemeral streams to take advantage of that episodic recharge? Yes, Bridget. Those strategic aquifers I've mentioned earlier, and uh, most of these are recharged during exceptional rainfall events, during floods, and then floods get into suck into this. And then it has two advantages. One is in terms of water quantity, and also along these uh, flood waters, where the flood water gets into the aquifers, that is when we get also fresher groundwater with low salinities. And yes, and as a region also has some progressive policy measures in terms of or practices in terms of land management. And there is a number of programs and projects on sustainable land management, whereby communities come out to the catchment and then construct soil water conservation structures. And recent research, again, a collaborative research between my university at the Sub University and then the University of Oxford has demonstrated that recharge to groundwater and the storage of groundwater can be enhanced, it has been enhanced. And communities which have done these practices have benefited both in terms of use of groundwater for small scale irrigation development and small scale food production and adjacent areas where you don't have those kind of practices are not as well off as uh, communities which have uh, practices uh, approaches. Yeah, ephemeral streams, uh, recharging the aquifer, and then experience also of sand dams. Uh, I think Kenya is a good example. There are a number of uh, places where sand dams have been constructed. Yeah, communities could do that. And then, yeah, this more or less uh, somehow similar to managed aquifer recharge, but uh, this is uh, more locally, contextually applicable method in that region. And there is a scope to enhance this and then to, to use sand dams as alternatives. Well, there, there is always externalities to any engineering structures that we put in place. Nevertheless, there are demonstrations and evidences that sand dams could be a, a good options in, in, some, in some regions. Right. And uh, another thing that you mentioned is the lack of data. And you use the term survival bias in one of your papers. And I've heard this from a number of other people also, is that people don't report when they have dry wells and they call them test wells or whatever. And you don't know where dry wells have been drilled so that maybe you can avoid those areas or you can learn from that experience 
or where people have gotten high salinity groundwater yeah. or high fluoride water. And so it, we would really benefit from more comprehensive reporting that includes these failures, but we don't like to advertise negative things, do we? <laughs> it would be nice if the reporting would yeah. include some of these ideas. Do you have some ideas on that uh, or it's just difficult to, to, to get those data? Yes, I think uh, the way data is captured and circulated in certain parts of the world is maybe unique to that part in the Horn of Africa. Recently, we made a survey, you know, the way data is captured and circulated and shared peer-to-peer, people-to-people data sharing kind of dominates over centralized data through which everybody gets access to the data set and then use that data. One way of getting handling on data that is not reported is to talk to people. (laughs) <laughs> people who are involved in, in, in drilling. And then uh, professional organizations like our association or local associations, drillers associations, is where you can capture data on these unreported boreholes. And well, it is not always uh, gloomy, <laughs> gloomy, but uh, there are ways yeah, to, to, to capture this data. And that is what I've tried to look into in the Horn of Africa region, talking to people, talking to and looking into the gray literature and uh, success rate, evidence on success rate, digging success rate was kind of captured. But yeah, we also recently did some survey to see if there has been any change. I would say success rate is improving and because of new evidence and new information, use of hydrogeology maps, use of uh, data, the use of satellite technology, etc. Drilling success rate is reportedly among the community, hydrogeology community in Ethiopia and that's all of Africa region. Reportedly, it is increasing and uh, thanks to investment on knowledge and data uh, gathering. And so in a lot of cases, it's non-governmental organizations, NGOs and other groups who are involved in drilling boreholes and stuff. And they certainly won't have the level of expertise that you do, Seifu, on the hydrogeology of the region. So they could benefit from an understanding of what's feasible and what's not. And I think you have been trying to translate your detailed work to something that's more readily accessible to these groups and to other people through maps and other reports. And I I really like those. So we've had the the, the Germans produced hydrogeology maps of global hydrogeology maps, and then the British Geological Survey, Alan MacDonald and others, developed maps of Africa, the aquifers, and tried to characterize them at a very large scale. But then the types of maps that you're talking about that you shared with me are like whether it's diggable, whether you could have a dug well or a borehole, and maybe you can describe some of these and then some reports like how far apart you should have your wells if you want to irrigate with a certain amount of water for smallholder irrigation projects and how deep you should have the well to store some water. Maybe you can describe some of these, uh, Seifu. Thank you, Bridget. That is uh, another very important, very good question. The last decade uh, we have known in in Africa, uh, many different maps, Pan-African scale being uh, published by partner organizations. These maps have really led the planning, continental scale planning, and I would say policy making. And uh, nowadays, 
uh, you will see several sub-Saharan African countries and African countries adding groundwater into their security mix, their water security mix. And then uh, the city of Cape Town is an evidence for that. The city of Cape Town kind of investing on groundwater and going to draw up to 150,000 meter cube per day and adding that into the city's water supply system. And then aspirations on groundwater is rising thanks to these maps which have produced evidence at, at continental scale. Nevertheless, converting these ambitions as well as evidence into real action on the ground among farmers would need huge capacity, you know, trained manpower, hydrogeologists, vehicles, drilling rigs. This scale of capacity that is required to realize Africa's ambition on ground that is huge. So what has to follow? So one way to go is to go by farmers driving approach. Farmers doing their own survey of the groundwater and digging boreholes or digging handed wells or manual boreholes into, into the ground and then monitoring their groundwater systems and then placing rightly distance between handed wells. This is like hydrogeology made easy or making the Darcy equation more made easy locally. And then what we have been trying to do at local level for the agricultural transformation energy, sorry, agricultural transformation agency in Ethiopia is developing tools and guidelines that are understandable for to farmers and extension agents or development agents to use and then drive sustainable use of groundwater for minor and small scale food production. Yes, I think you, you were asking about the spacing tool, uh, catchment sizing tool, and handed well depths, water column uh, tool. So these tools are to irrigate one hectare of land, what is the water column requirement in, in, in a dugway? So this will help the farmer to, to design his, his dugway, led by also supported by the extension agent. So that is a way to overcome the huge capacity need to realize uh, what the governments, African states are aspiring and also what uh, financing agencies are kind of trying to support. Right. And I think uh, this follows on. I had an earlier uh, podcast with uh, Paul Bowman, where he works with people in Uganda and other regions, the local people, and helps them figure out where best to site wells using surface geophysics and to interpret the geophysics and then to drill the boreholes themselves, hand dug wells, and then to monitor them and maintain them. And so I think the World Bank has a group called Farmer-Led Irrigation Development, FLID, which supports the stakeholder involvement. And it seems if they are integrally involved in the development of the resource, then they are in a much better position to manage it and maintain it and understand the dynamics so it won't be voodoo to them. <laughs> they will be involved with drilling and all of that. And, and so I think it will help them manage the resource a lot better. So it's a challenge. Uh, but I think you mentioned earlier that the, the recent World Bank report and, and what they're doing with farmer-led irrigation development and emphasizing groundwater development for economic growth and stuff, I think these are all parts of this issue and trying to achieve some of the aspirational goals that you want for sub-Saharan Africa. 
One of the things that you mentioned recently in a discussion, Seifu, was these pockmarked depressions at the land surface and that they seem to be associated with an underlying groundwater resource and that some groups are developing these and we don't know that much about them and that uh, we really need to understand them better so that we could protect them and manage them appropriately. Can you, but these pockmarks seem to be over large areas. Can you describe these a little bit and what you think needs to be done to develop them appropriately? I can First, across these pockmark depressions, while I was uh, trying to assist the USGS project in that part of the world, and I've made some survey of passive seismic in the depressions, and yeah, I, I made survey of maybe two, three such depressions, and then recently in 2021, a group of German scientists have published a paper on fairy circles in, in Namibia. These were like tiny, small circular features around which the circle is defined by grasses. And then looks like uh, very intriguing. And then, and because of my that experience in uh, the Horn of Africa region, I say, oh, that part of the world has also these uh, circular depressions, but it's different from what you see in Namibia. The ones we see in uh, Ethiopia, Somalia are larger kilometric scale, and these ones are like a uh, metric scale. And then... I wondered uh, why don't I look across uh, the African scale and uh, realize that they are almost everywhere in dry, dry land environments. And then I was trying to put together a paper and then uh, we recently presented an abstract at the IH on these pockmarks and also realized that uh, other groups of people are working on this. And then I saw a recent publication on uh, pockmarks. They call it still fairy circles and they're extinct globally, worldwide in Australia in Africa. And then what I was trying to look into is the hydrological significance of these larger pockmarks that we have in the Horn of Africa region and following up on the work I started with USGS. And then these depressions are serving like a perched groundwater system, but they are very vital water systems. People can dig 100 wells and then fetch water from 100 wells. In otherwise, very deep groundwater area. The, the regional water table is like 200 meters. And in these pockmark depressions, in some of these pockmark depressions, you have very shallow groundwaters and serving cattle, camels, people, water trucks. And then these pockmark depressions are attracting small urban congregations around, around the depressions. And then uh, visually or in the naked eyes are not really visible. Unless you closely see it is not visible, but the local people know about, about these features. They, they call them Bali. Uh, in uh, Somali language, it's called Bali. Bali to mean belly. Like, uh, so yes, uh, we're looking into the, the hydrological, hydrological significance of these features. And yeah, in some places they are being compromised, being damaged because of settlements uh, around these features, contamination, and then compaction of uh, the recharge uh, surfaces. And then uh, that is the kind of things that uh, we need to quickly protect from further damage. And uh, these are vital water systems that has not been recognized in the past, but more evidence is needed. We are just at the, the starting stage to understand these features. We need more research, hydrological, uh, hydrological research on this. and 
yeah, I think if there are finances funding, uh, interested in funding, uh, then we'll be happy to to continue researching these uh, vital water systems and, and particularly creating also awareness among development partners operating in that region so as to better protect and safeguard the system for sustainable use. Right. I had never heard of them before, but as you say, they're very subtle and so difficult to see on the ground, but you can see them in Google Maps and stuff. You can see yes. these sort of circular features, but then understanding the hydrologic implications of these, how deep is the groundwater, how widespread, and then to manage the resource. So I think geophysics, and you always use geochemistry to understand them and see quite distinct geochemistry within and outside them. And then yeah. as people become more aware of these, then to try to avoid over-exploitation and to manage them appropriately. So that would be great. They could be a real resource in areas where otherwise the groundwater is a couple of hundred meters deep. And so you yeah. would only be able to, to drill a borehole that de depth for maybe a larger scale development or something. So. Yeah. It's a very interesting area and uh, look forward to learning more about them and, and trying to see how they can be developed. Yeah, then let's see if uh, there are any interested parties on uh, on this and make a further exploration. I, uh, recently, in collaboration with UNICEF, UNDP, we gather, gathered some uh, data on isotopes in, in waters in this region to look into carbon-14, uh, 3TM, stable isotopes of water. There is clear evidence that this depression serve as recharge areas containing purchased groundwaters. And nevertheless, we need to explore this further uh, when you look into the age indicators, 3TM and carbon-14. We felt that some more additional age, age indicators would be needed, maybe possible chloride 36 or noble gases or other age indicators may be needed to really understand uh, the groundwater dynamics in that part of the world. Right. And I mean, in the High Plains region in the US, where we've done quite a bit of work, we have these circular features called playas. And early on in the early 1950s and 60s, uh, they thought they were groundwater discharge zones, but then later realized that they were recharge features. And then there was some concern because municipal waste and Department of Energy waste was being disposed, thinking that they were not recharge features. So there was some remediation. But uh, so that's the primary place for recharge yeah. in the Southern High Plains are these suppliers. So if these features are somewhat similar, maybe they may serve a similar role. You've been in South Africa now for a few years, and do you think that the groundwater situation in South Africa is quite different from that in, in East Africa or the Horn of Africa? Seems like South Africa relies fairly heavily on surface water resources, and maybe there's opportunities for their development of groundwater resources, and maybe then since they have surface water, maybe they could conjunctively manage surface water and groundwater to optimize water resources. What are your thoughts about South Africa, Seifu? Yes, I think as you rightly said, South Africa is, the country South Africa is heavily surface water dependent and groundwater accounts for less than 
20%. This is just a rough estimation. The exact number may be different, but less than 20% of the water supply was for domestic use, industrial irrigation, etc. And because of historical reasons, South Africa is heavily surface water independent. But the 2015-2016 Elino has taught the hard way that conjunctive use is an inevitable path because of that day zero Cape Town has encountered. And then there is no guarantee that other parts of South Africa will not face the Cape Town situation. And then the government, so Water Research Commission, has rightly identified you know, to scale research on groundwater recently and in the coming five years, which is a right choice in my opinion. And we need to look into how to add groundwater into the water security mix here in South Africa to overcome the upcoming challenges, climate challenges and human pressure. And the Horn of Africa region, you're right, like in Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, maybe with different degree or differences, you see heavy reliance on groundwater, particularly for drinking water supply. And then agriculture is still rain-fed largely, but we see pockets of emerging groundwater-dependent irrigation uh, farmers-led locally. And not really, like, I don't have the right term to that for that. Is it cherry something? Yeah, it's cherry is a small thing, yeah? Maybe correct my English later. So it's very small scale, but showing that this can easily be quickly catch the attention of the other nearby farmers and then uh, groundwater can develop very quickly among, can be uptaken by farmers very quickly. So yeah, there are differences. We see heavy groundwater reliance for drinking water supply in Horn of Africa region and in South Africa, it is more of surface water reliance, but moving also into adding groundwater into the, the mix. But the, there are also differences like we have the SADIC GMI, which is a very mature uh, organization that is coordinating the countries on managing the shared aquifers and non-shared aquifers as well, I believe. And in the Horn of Africa region and other regions of Africa, including the Niger, Sahel region, the institutions for collaborative management are yet to be developed and data sharing, particularly data is there. That is my belief. The data is somewhere. And that data which is sitting somewhere in a black box, the missing link is bringing this to, to light and then using this evidence for decision-making. So in that regard, other part of Africa is falling behind compared to Southern Africa or South Africa. Right. So I think it seems like they're advancing with governance and approaches in Southern Africa. You mentioned SEDIC Groundwater Management Institute, GMI, uh, SADC, SADC, South Africa, Southern Africa. What does SADC South, stand South for? South Africa De Development Community. Development SDC. Community, Groundwater Management Ground Institute. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so that's that's great. And then there is concern, I guess, in some regions of Southern Africa about conserving wetlands and not having groundwater development impact wetlands. And there are some very famous Ramsar sites. And so is that a concern in many regions or just in localized areas where those wetlands are found? Let me see this uh, for the for, uh, recent uh, direction uh, on connection between protected environments, conservation areas, and groundwater. I think globally, the past experience is that 
the boundaries of conservation areas and protected environments, wetlands, Ramsar sites, is based on the surface water catchment. I think that is the way it is boundaries, protection areas are delineated. It happens so, particularly in drier, arid regions and many tectonically impacted, affected regions, the boundaries of surface water and groundwater doesn't match all the time. And then in this regard, there may be an interest. I think there is a, a recent publication on that. Uh, I, I don't remember the, the name right now. On uh, demonstrating the if groundwaters were factored into delineation of protection area, it could have been different from the experiences or the practices that many countries are doing currently in, in terms of protecting uh, these vital systems and the Ramsar sites, etc. So. I view this uh, issue in South Africa from this angle. And uh, in South Africa, we have many protected environments, conservation areas, these wetland systems, Ramsar uh, sites. And evidence is needed on these systems and how they are connected to adjacent groundwaters. If we are aspiring, enhancing groundwater use for irrigation development and for other purposes, then we will need to also safeguard connected systems, connected social systems, connected ecological systems. So in that regard, again, further research is needed. And well, we are trying our best to understand the wetland systems in, in the catchment where my university is located currently. Great. So University and, um, of KwaZulu-Natal, yeah. KwaZulu Center for Water Resources Research, yeah. Right, right. So, Sefu, you've done a tremendous amount of work in the Horn of Africa, now in Southern Africa, and you're serving as the vice president for the IA, uh, International Association of Hydrogeologists chapter. How do you see groundwater development evolving in the near future? Are you hopeful that we will be able to advance at the smallholder farmers, help them secure drinking water supplies and small-scale irrigation to support food production and food security, and to, to try to manage these droughts and floods that we're continually subjected to? How do you see it evolving? Yes. So, Bridget, Africa is a very huge continent for our readers. Africa has the size of the U.S., China, India, and Europe, I think, combined. A huge continent. So we have variabilities in, in, in hydrology. And then if you look into Africa, that is underlain by what we call basement rocks, basement aquifers. And yeah, by some coincidence, most of these basement aquifers also have high rainfall conditions, rainfall varying between 500 millimeters to up to 1,500 millimeters. And then these basement aquifers have shallow regolits underlain by intact rocks, and most of the ground that is circulating is in the shallow level. Yeah, this may not be appropriate to for the kind of irrigation that we see in, in California or in Ogolala or in, in other places, but small scale farmers did half a hectare, one hectare land, that kind of thing can be, is feasible and it's possible. Yeah, for instance, if you look into this, we call depressions inside, not the depressions, not the pockmarks I've talked about, but the depressions between hills in basement aquifer areas, also locally called dambus, they are very extensive. And also boreholes in basement aquifers. Average yield could be, if, if rightly cited, according to a recent paper, 
by Bianchi in 2023, I suppose, shows borehole yield could be a borehole yield of 0.5 liter per second could be achieved in this environment. So comparing the area, taking the area, taking the, the borehole yield, uh, there is a possibility uh, for enhancing groundwater use for food production and drinking water supply. Well, nevertheless, there are also people who are concerned about this because of wetlands going to be impacted or connected ecosystems may be impacted because of this uh, shallow groundwater development for, for use. And then every country is unique, every region is unique, and then countries have their own aspirations and then their sequencing of what they want to do and creating awareness about sustainability, but at the same time also creating awareness about possibility of using this for local food production. It could be, yes, a good option and a viable option in the future, I believe. Yeah. Right. I think Alan McDonald mentioned that these basement aquifers represent about 40% of the land area in sub-Saharan Africa. And so, and the World Bank in their aquifer typology, they use a carton approach to suggest that these are small localized systems that are sort of self-regulating. And so there's not a lot of storage to over-exploit. And so maybe these would be ideal then to support smallholder drinking water supplies and small-scale irrigation. And I think the maps that you have been developing, translating your detailed hydrogeology to very simple maps, and then the things you have been developing about borehole spacing and depths and all that to support this are very valuable to help translate this to the farmers and hopefully that they can take it on. Our guest today is Seifu Kebedi, who is a professor of hydrology at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. And on the website, I will include links to many of his book and his papers and other sources that we mentioned today. Thank you so much, Seifu, for talking with me today and sharing your knowledge and for all the great work you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bridget, for uh, inviting. And I was happy uh, talking to you. And, you know, thanks so much.